It is good to be back with you this morning. Uh, Adam, I thank you so much for organizing this weekend's apologetics conference. And thank you to so many of you who were able to come and who took the time to come. I know this time of year in particular, uh, a Friday night and a Saturday are very precious times, especially if you have kids and other activities or you have to work. Uh, but so many of you were able to take some time to come either Friday night or Saturday or even both and uh, had a great time together, really enjoyed our times of fellowship, uh, getting to visit with several of you, getting to know you a little bit better. Uh, there are great things happening here at uh, First Baptist Gainesville, and I would not only bring you greetings from uh, your state missionaries at the Missouri Baptist Convention, uh, but also I'm delighted to just to take home to them a good report of so many great things happening here. So thank you so much for hosting me. Uh, thank you for your hospitality and for your kindness and uh, for giving me an opportunity to visit with you about Christian apologetics. Uh, and for those of you maybe who were not able to be here either of the two days, uh, Christian apologetics simply is defined as a reasonable defense of the Christian faith. That word in English, apologetics, comes from a Greek noun, apologia, and it simply means a defense. And uh, Peter tells us in 1 Peter chapter 3 that all of us are Christian apologists. He said that all of us should be ready at all times to give a reason for the hope that is within us. And then he goes on to say, but we need to do so with gentleness and respect. And uh, so on Friday night, we looked a little bit at what is Christian apologetics. We also looked at different worldviews, how different people uh, interpret reality based on the worldview glasses that they put on and what is a Christian worldview or a biblical worldview. Then yesterday, we spent some time uh, looking at uh, Mormonism, Jehovah's Witnesses, Islam, and what the Bible has to say about same-sex attraction. So we kind of want to bring everything together this morning and focus on a passage of Scripture from the Apostle Paul. If you have your Bibles, if you turn in them to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And while you're turning there, let me just set that up a little bit for you. The Apostle Paul uh, traveled to Corinth and established a church there. He stayed there about 18 months and then moved on. And after Paul moved on, there were some others who came into the church at Corinth who were claiming to be, as Paul said, super apostles, if you can imagine that. Uh, and uh, Paul, uh, being an apostle, had to take some time here to defend his apostleship and not only that, but to point out that those who were coming in claiming to be super apostles really were nothing more than false apostles. And so in the midst of Paul having to boast a little bit of his authentic apostleship, he gives us some indications of what we can look for uh, when false apostles, false preachers, false teachers come into the church. So we're going to look at just a sliver of that section, beginning with verse 1 of 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 
Paul says, I wish you would put up with a little foolishness from me. And that is the foolishness of him having to defend himself as an apostle. Yes, do put up with me, for I am jealous for you with a godly jealousy, because I promised you in marriage to one husband to present a pure virgin to Christ. But I fear that, as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your minds may be seduced from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. Verse 4 is key. For if a person comes and preaches another Jesus, whom we did not preach, or you receive a different spirit, which you had not received, or a different gospel, which you had not accepted, you put up with it splendidly. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you for what the Apostle Paul tells us about being aware of those who come into the church like savage wolves and uh, fleece the flock. And Father Paul specifically gives us some markers that we can look for, and I pray we'll take those to heart today and remember them. And uh, Father, as we do, that you would encourage us uh, to share our faith with others, uh, to identify those who teach things that are contrary to your word, and to be able to engage them with the truth with gentleness and respect. Thank you for each person who's here this morning. Father, I just pray that we might be able to clear away for just a few minutes uh, the distractions of the world, to focus on what your word would say to us, and Father, to listen in our spirits to what you would say to us. Thank you for giving me the privilege of being here this morning. I pray, Father, you would forgive me of any unconfessed sin, that uh, I would not in any way hinder what you want to do through me in the proclamation of your word today. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may have noticed in verse 4 that Paul gives us three markers for identifying false prophets, false preachers, or false teachers who come into the church or even who are outside of the church yet nevertheless claim a belief in Jesus or claim to have a belief system that is consistent with historic Christianity. Paul says we should beware of those who preach another Jesus, a different spirit, and a different gospel. Uh, and so what I want for us to do in the short time that we have together this morning is to take those three markers, Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the gospel, and to lay those aside, three of the most popular and most populous belief systems in the world today. Uh, we're going to look very briefly at what do Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, and Muslims believe about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the gospel. And let me preface this with what I've said Friday night and Saturday night, and that is um, I want you to hear my heart. Uh, I am not by any means uh, belittling um, or demeaning uh, anyone who is a Jehovah's Witness, a Mormon, 
or a Muslim. Uh, these are precious people created in the image of God. Uh, they are loved with the eternal love of God. Christ left the glory of heaven and came to earth and offered his life on their behalf and desires that they would come into a right relationship with him. These are people who sincerely seek the truth and believe they have found the truth. And so my purpose is not to belittle them. My purpose is to lay what they believe specifically about Jesus, the Holy Spirit, and the gospel alongside what the Bible tells us who the real Jesus is, who the real Holy Spirit is, and what the real gospel is. Okay, is that fair enough? Okay, let's start. Let's start with the first marker that the Apostle Paul gives us, and that is the marker of Jesus. Uh, Paul says that we need to beware of those who proclaim another Jesus. So if we begin by asking our Jehovah's Witness friends, um, do you believe in Jesus? Uh, they will say, well, yeah, we believe in Jesus and we love Jesus. And I take them at their word. I believe they are absolutely sincere when they say that. But we have to go one step farther and say, all right, well, who do you believe Jesus is? And our Jehovah's Witness friends will say something like this. Well, we believe that Jesus is the very first being that Jehovah God created. Jehovah created Jesus initially as Michael the archangel. And then about 2,000 years ago, Jehovah took the life force of Michael and placed it into the womb of the Virgin Mary. This is not an incarnation. This is not God becoming flesh. This is simply the taking of a life force of an angel and placing it into the womb of a virgin so that what we have in Jesus of Nazareth is a human being and only a human being. And then Jesus lived a sinless life and he died not on a cross, he died on a torture stake because a cross is a pagan symbol imposed later on Christianity. And then after he died to exonerate the name of Jehovah, three days later, Jehovah took his life force and recreated him as an exalted Michael the Archangel uh, who returned invisibly in 1914 and today is establishing his kingdom on earth. Well, how about our Mormon friends? We ask them, do you believe in Jesus? And they will say, yeah. We believe in Jesus and we love Jesus. And I believe they're absolutely sincere when they say that. But we need to ask them, all right, who do you believe Jesus is? And our Mormon friends will say something like this. Well, you see, at its very core, Jesus is really not much different than you and me. Because all of us have always existed. All of us are always eternal. And all of us began from all eternity as an eternally existing intelligent being. But what makes Jesus unique is that Jesus is the very first one to be taken out of that realm and to be born into the pre-mortal spirit world via sexual relations between Elohim, who's the god of this world, and one of his goddess wives. Uh, by the way, the second one born into that spirit realm was Lucifer, 
the spirit brother of Jesus. Both Lucifer and Jesus uh, offered to Elohim a plan of redemption for the human race that was yet to come. Uh, Elohim chose Jesus' plan. Lucifer got mad and rebelled. But Elohim accepted Jesus' plan, so Jesus came to earth, born of a virgin. He lived a sinless life. He died on the cross and rose from the dead so that you and I can be resurrected one day and earn a way to exaltation or godhood. Well, what about our Muslim friends? If we ask them if they believe in Jesus, they will say, we do believe in Jesus, and we love Jesus. And I believe they're absolutely sincere. They call him Isa, and they have a great place in their belief system for him. In fact, Isa is mentioned more times in the Quran than Muhammad is. And so we say, okay, well then who is Isa? Who is Jesus? And our Muslim friends will say something like this. Well, you see, Jesus is the second greatest prophet ever to appear in human history. Of the 124,000 prophets that Allah sent to mankind, uh, Jesus is the second greatest, second only to Muhammad himself, who is the final prophet, the seal of the prophets. And we believe Jesus was born of a virgin, not God becoming human flesh, but they do believe he was born without a human father. And that Jesus uh, performed miracles. And even Muhammad didn't perform miracles. And Jesus lived a sinless life. And the Quran tells us even Muhammad did not live a sinless life. And then Jesus was placed on the cross, but... Allah would not allow such a great prophet to suffer a shameful death on a Roman cross. So Allah took Jesus off the cross and put in his place either Judas Iscariot or someone made to look like Judas Iscariot. And then Muslims don't agree on this. Some believe Jesus was called up into heaven and others believe he was taken off the cross and he lived his life out and his buried here on earth. They believe he's coming back one day, but when Jesus returns, he will break all crosses, he will destroy all churches, he will slaughter a pig, and he will establish Islam as the one true religion on the face of the earth. Well, we have three different belief systems here that encompass nearly two billion people in the world's population. Three different belief systems whose followers all profess to believe in Jesus and love Jesus, and yet who proclaim another Jesus. So who is the real Jesus? Who does the Bible say Jesus really is? Well, the Bible says that Jesus is the eternal Son of God. He is the uncreated creator of all things. He is the second person of the triune Godhead, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and with the Spirit. 2,000 years ago, Jesus left the glory of heaven and came to earth. He did not set aside his deity in heaven. He set aside his privileged position at the Father's right hand. And he came to earth and added to his deity sinless humanity via the miracle of the virgin birth, so that Jesus and only Jesus can rightly be claimed 
as the Son of Man or the God-Man, fully divine and fully human, and that he lived a perfect and sinless life, and that he offered up that life on the cross, and on the cross he took my sins, and he took your sins, and he became guilty of those sins, and he took the full weight of the wrath of God for our sins and paid them in full. He was buried. He rose physically from the dead on the third day. He appeared to many people over the period of the next 40 days. Then he ascended physically into heaven. Today he is seated at the right hand of the Father as our mediator and our intercessor. And he's coming back one day visibly, personally, physically, and gloriously in power and great glory to fulfill all things. That is the Jesus of the Bible that Paul proclaims and tells us to proclaim ourselves. Well, Paul gives us a second marker here, and he says, beware of those who proclaim a different spirit. Now, depending on what English translation you have, that word spirit might be capitalized or it might be lower case. And some Bible commentators believe here that Paul is using the word spirit the same way that the Apostle John uses the word spirit in 1 John chapter 4, talking about people who claim divine gifting for service. So they say it's possible here Paul is warning them against false teachers who come into the church. But other commentators believe it's a reference to the Holy Spirit. And uh, that's the reference I prefer, and it also helps us in establishing our three markers today. So we're going to take that approach and look at what our Jehovah's Witness, Mormon, and Muslim friends believe about the Holy Spirit. So we go back to our Jehovah's Witness friends and we say, do you believe in the Holy Spirit? And they will say something like this. Well, we believe in Holy Spirit. Lowercase h and lowercase s. And in fact, if you pick up a copy of the Jehovah's Witness Bible, the New World Translation, every reference to Holy Spirit is lower cased. You say, well, why is that? And they say, well, we believe the Bible teaches that Holy Spirit is an impersonal force. It is an impersonal force Jehovah God uses to accomplish his will here on earth. And in fact, they liken it to electricity. If you want to light a room up and you have lamps, you have to plug those lamps into a power source. And when you do so, that electricity flows through the wire into the lamps and illuminates the whole room. They say that's very much like the Holy, or rather Holy Spirit, uh, an impersonal force Jehovah God uses to accomplish his will on earth. Well, what about our Mormon friends? If we ask them if they believe in the Holy Spirit, and they'll say, yes, we do. Uh, and in fact, if you go to one of their websites, mormon.org or lds.org, and you look up under what they believe, and you read their definition of the Holy Spirit, it reads fairly similar to what you might expect from any uh, evangelical Christian commentary, but that really doesn't tell the full story. Um, what Mormons believe and teach, and, uh, and from very early on in their history, 
was that there's a difference between the Holy Spirit and the Holy Ghost. Uh, the Holy Spirit is uh, something like an impersonal force. The Holy Ghost is a God who still resides in the spirit world. And he has uh, uh, avoided taking on human flesh and blood so he can stay in the spirit realm and send his Holy Spirit to dwell in us, to empower us, and to accomplish his will. So ultimately there's a difference between the Holy Ghost, who is a God in heaven or in the spirit realm, and the Holy Spirit, who is an impersonal force sent by the Holy Spirit or by the Holy Ghost. Well, what about our Muslim friends? If we talk to them and say, do you have in your beliefs anything to do with the Holy Spirit? And they will say, yeah, we do, as a matter of fact. Uh, if you pick up the Quran, you will see that there are several places where the Holy Spirit is mentioned. And not all Muslims believe exactly on this point, as far as I understand, but there's sort of a consensus that when the Quran mentions the Holy Spirit, that is a reference to none other than the angel Gabriel, uh, who was sent by Allah to deliver the eternally existing word of God uh, to Muhammad. And so over a period of 23 years, the angel Gabriel appears to Muhammad, gives him bits and pieces of this eternal word of God, and uh, Muhammad recites them, commits them to memory, and after his death they're collected and written down and gathered into what today is known as the recitations or the Quran. So the Holy Spirit is none other than the angel Gabriel. Well, here again we have three different belief systems, all three of which believe in the Holy Spirit, but all of which have an unbiblical view of the Holy Spirit. So who is the Holy Spirit? What does the Bible teach us about him? Well, the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit is the third person of the triune Godhead, co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and with the Son. Scripture tells us the Holy Spirit was involved in the creation of all things. We know in Genesis the Spirit of God hovered over or brooded over the waters. And we see throughout the Old Testament how the Holy Spirit would come upon different people, leaders in Israel, judges, prophets, kings, and empower them uh, to serve him. And then we see in the New Testament how the Holy Spirit comes and uh, comes and uh, empowers Jesus in his earthly ministry. And then Jesus tells his disciples, not long before his death, I'm going to go away, but when I go away, I'm going to send another comforter like me to you. He will not only be with you, but he will be in you. And on the day of Pentecost, after Jesus has ascended into heaven, the Holy Spirit comes and he indwells and seals and sets apart believers as his own. Uh, not only that, Jesus says the Holy Spirit would have a great work of ministry in believers, regenerating us or making us spiritually alive, indwelling us or taking up permanent residence in our human spirit, 
uh, comforting us, helping us understand his word, giving us spiritual gifts, putting God's mark of ownership on us, uh, baptizing us or placing us positionally into the body of Christ. Not only would the Holy Spirit do all of those things, but the Holy Spirit would also have an important ministry in the unbelieving world. Jesus said in John chapter 16, verses 7 through 11, when the Spirit comes, he's going to convict or convince the unbelieving world of three things, of sin, of righteousness, and of judgment. He said, of sin, because they do not believe on me. That is, the Holy Spirit, when we hear the gospel message, drives home the truth in us that what keeps us out of the kingdom of heaven, what keeps us out of an everlasting, unbreakable covenant relationship with Jesus Christ, is our refusal to place our faith and trust in the one who has provided for the forgiveness of our sins. But Jesus says the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there. He also convicts the unbeliever of righteousness. Uh, when you and I talk to many of our friends, they will tell us, well, you know what, I think I'm okay. I believe in God, and I live a good life. And I think at the end of the day, that's going to be good enough. Or I'm trying real hard. I believe and I work hard. I go to church. I put money in the offering plate. I teach a Sunday school class. Um, I'm a good parent. I'm a good citizen. I work hard. I'm doing all those things. And I think at the end of the day, God's going to say, I'm okay. And Jesus said the Holy Spirit comes and tells them, no, you're not. There is no human righteousness that will make us acceptable to God. There is no amount of work we can do to pay off the sin debt that we owe to an eternally uh, existing God who has been offended by our wickedness, our rebellion, and our rejection of him. So the Holy Spirit has to say, your righteousness counts for nothing. You have to plead the blood of Jesus Christ, who is the righteous one, and be clothed in his righteousness by God's grace through faith. And then Jesus said the Holy Spirit doesn't stop there. He also has to convince the unbeliever of judgment because the prince of this world has been judged. Hell was created for the devil and his angels, Jesus said in Matthew 25. He and his demons are spending eternity apart from God one day, but they haven't been sentenced yet. Satan still roams the earth like a lion, seeking whom he may devour. And his uh, demons do a great deal of harm all across the world. But the day is coming when they'll be cast into the lake of fire. And Jesus said the Holy Spirit has to drive home the truth in the heart of the unbeliever. That if you persist in your conscious, willful rejection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his provision for your sin, you will step out into eternity and experience the same judgment that has been decreed for Satan and his demons. So the Spirit of God does that work in the world as well as doing a great work of redemption in the human heart. But it's important for us to understand as we read from Genesis through Revelation that the Holy Spirit always is described as divine and personal. The Holy Spirit is God and the Holy Spirit is a person. Only a person can create. Only a, whole, a person can speak. Only a, holy, a, a divine person can be sinned against or can be grieved. 
um, and or can receive comfort from them. And so it's important for us to understand that the Holy Spirit is both divine and personal. Well, Paul gives us one final marker here. He says, beware of those who proclaim another Jesus, a different spirit, and then a different gospel. Well, let's go back to our Jehovah's Witness friend and ask them, what's the, what's the gospel? What's the good news? How is a person forgiven of sins and saved? And they will say that a person is saved by faith in Jesus Christ. However, they have to exercise their faith. Well, what does that mean, to exercise your faith? Well, it means work. Uh, it means going to the Bible studies regularly. It means going door to door. And many of them go between 80 and 90 hours a month in publishing, as they call it, going door to door. Uh, it means being uh, baptized. It means going to the memorial service. It means paying homage or paying honor to um, uh, the watchtower, the faithful and discreet slave of God, the only authority for God through which the Bible may be understood during this period of time. So you have to exercise your faith or do works uh, in order to be in the kingdom. They believe that Jesus died on a torture stake, not on a cross, and that on a torture stake he paid for Adam's sin, uh, and he exonerated the name of Jehovah. And so we say, well, uh, so what does that mean for you? What happens when you die? And they'll say, well, when we die, we're annihilated. We cease to exist. They believe in what we may call soul sleep, but more accurately, it's, it's annihilation or the ceasing to exist. And our hope is that when the resurrection comes, Jehovah God will call us from the grave, he'll place us in the millennial kingdom, and then if we prove ourselves worthy throughout the millennium, then we'll be allowed to enter in to paradise on earth. They say, well, what about heaven? And most Jehovah's Witnesses would say, we have no hope of heaven. Heaven is reserved for Jesus and 144,000, the anointed class, Basically, most Jehovah's Witnesses who be, were Jehovah's Witnesses before 1935. There aren't very many of them left, so the 144,000 is pretty well taken, and only they will be spiritually resurrected and taken to heaven to live with Jesus. The best hope a Jehovah's Witness has is to be resurrected physically one day to survive the millennial kingdom in faithfulness and then to enter in to paradise on earth, to be ruled by a Jesus they'll never see and 144,000 they'll never fellowship with in heaven. You say, well, how, how do you know? What confidence do you have that you'll be resurrected one day? What confidence do you have that you'll enter into the millennium? What confidence do you have you'll be able to spend paradise on earth? And if they're honest, they will say, well, I, I think so. I hope so. Uh, I'm working hard for that, I'm believing hard for that, but I can't say with absolute certainty what my eternal destiny is. Well, what about our Mormon friends? If we ask them, uh, do you believe in the gospel? And they will say, yeah, we do. In fact, we believe in the gospel so strongly we have 
two Gospels. There are two plans of salvation. There is what's known as general salvation, and that basically means resurrection. Jesus lived a sinless life, died on the cross, and rose from the dead to provide general salvation for all people. And that simply means the opportunity to be resurrected one day. They believe when Adam sinned, he didn't fall, uh, he fell forward. That is, he provided mortality uh, for us so that we could leave the spirit realm, come to earth and take on mortality. But the bad news is if you take on mortality, you die. So what happens? Jesus had to come and live and die and rise from the dead so we could be resurrected one day. So general salvation basically, in Mormon thinking, is resurrection. And that's where the second gospel comes in, and that is individual salvation. Individual salvation depends totally on me. It depends totally on works. Um, I need to be uh, baptized in the Mormon church. I need to have my uh, marriage sealed for time and eternity in a Mormon temple. I need to follow the words of wisdom, which is a moral code. Um, I need to do temple works, which includes being baptized on behalf of those who've gone before me, uh, who won't be able to make it to the highest kingdom uh, and, unless they've been baptized, so I'll be baptized for them and to do a wide number of other things, and I work as hard as I can with the hope that maybe, just maybe, I will be resurrected and taken to the highest heaven. Now, they believe there are three different kingdoms. Uh, there is the ter uh, telestial kingdom. The telestial kingdom, that's the lowest level. Most people who are not religious at all, or even the wicked, most of them will make it to the telestial kingdom. Um, the next kingdom is the terrestrial kingdom, and that would be for good Southern Baptists like us. We'll probably get to the terrestrial kingdom, which is a pretty good place, but the goal, which only Mormons can achieve, is the celestial kingdom. That's the highest kingdom, and you want to get to the highest level of the celestial kingdom, which is exaltation, or godhood, and that is only acquired by being a faithful workman throughout your entire life. And if you make it there and attain deity or godhood, you'll be able to call out a secret name, your wife will be resurrected, your family will join you, and the council of the gods may give you your own planet, your own universe, just as Elohim has here to rule and reign over yourself, and you will enjoy eternal increase, creating new spirit children via sexual relations between yourself and your goddess wives. Say, what uh, confidence do you have you're gonna make it to the celestial kingdom? Well, we, we don't. We're trying hard, we're working hard, we think we're gonna be okay, but we don't really know for sure. Well, but what about our Muslim friends? We asked them about the gospel. They have a different understanding of that. For them, the gospel or the angel is basically the story of Jesus. Um, but you ask them, what do you, what do you do about eternal life? Do you believe in a heaven and a hell? And they'll say, yeah, we do, as a matter of fact. And uh, for us, it's pretty simple. Um, first of all, Allah has predetermined everything. Uh, everything that we do, including our eternal destiny, has been predetermined, but it's been left to us to follow the five 
pillars of Islam. So in other words, I have to begin with the shahada. That is a public profession that says, and you say it publicly, you say it with meaning, and you say it to uh, other Muslims, and you say there is no God but Allah, and Muhammad is the messenger of Allah. And if you say that, you become a Muslim. But that's not the end of it. Uh, then you have to engage in uh, Salat, which is 17 cycles of prayer spread across five different time periods every day. It's readings from the Quran and other things. It has to be done five times a day every day. And then that's not enough. You have to give zakat. You have to give alms, a percentage of your income that goes to your local mosque and then is shared with others, a portion of which goes to support global jihad. Uh, but that's not all. Then you have to observe Ramadan. It's a 30-day period of time every year that acknowledges the giving of the Quran to Muhammad. And that's not enough. Then you have to engage in the Hajj, uh, which is the uh, pilgrimage to Mecca that every person who is physically and financially able must do at least once in their lifetime. And if you do all of these things, these five pillars, and you follow them faithfully, maybe just maybe Allah has predestined you to life in paradise. Now the only guarantee a person can have is if a uh, person engages in uh, jihad and is killed in jihad, then there is the guarantee of paradise. For everyone else, it is the five pillars and you follow them faithfully. You say, well, how do you know if you follow them faithfully? How do you know you followed them faithfully enough? And uh, they will say, well, uh, you can't really know. In fact, in the Quran, not long before his death, Muhammad acknowledged he did not know what would become of him when he died. You notice a common thread in these? It is salvation by works for our Jehovah's Witness friends, our Mormon friends, and our Muslim friends, and there's no certainty of everlasting life. Well, what is the real gospel? The gospel Paul proclaimed and the gospel we should believe. Well, the Bible tells us that, first of all, we need to acknowledge the bad news side of the gospel, and that is all of us are sinners. Uh, David said, I was conceived in sin and iniquity my mother bore me. We're sinners by nature and we're sinners by choice and sin has consequences. We've offended the eternally existing and holy God and so we're separated from him and unless God does something about it, you and I will continue to live our lives on our terms and our ways and we'll step out into eternity the way we've lived our lives totally apart from God. But that's not the end of the story. The good news side of the gospel is this. God didn't leave us there. He sent his son, coming in the likeness of sinful and fallen human beings, born of a virgin, who lived a perfect and sinless life. And he went voluntarily to the cross and laid his life down. And on the cross, he who knew no sin became sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. On the cross, just before Jesus died, he could say, it is finished. The work 
of redemption was complete. Those words were significant, whether you were a Jew or a Roman standing around the cross. For a Roman hearing those words, it is finished, would be the words of a Roman general overseeing a battlefield who could declare the fight was over and the battle was won. For the Jews gathered around the throne, they would recognize those words. Those words, it is finished, are the words of the high priest on the Day of Atonement when all of the sacrifices had been offered and there were no more to be offered until the next Day of Atonement. Jesus could say, it's finished. The battle is won and the sin debt has been paid. Because of his sinless life, his death, his burial, and his resurrection, all of the work necessary for forgiveness of sins and eternal life has been done. And we've been offered forgiveness of sins and a right relationship with God by the grace of God alone through faith in Christ alone. That's the gospel message and a much better story, I think. Much more hopeful much more confident. Well, let me close with this. Uh, I have a book on my shelf you might have on yours as well, written by the late Walter Martin. It's called The Kingdom of the Cults. Uh, and in the foreword to that book, Dr. Martin tells a story about the American Banking Association. And I know nothing about the American Banking Association other than what I read in the foreword by Dr. Martin. But he said that many of the members of the American Banking Association are bank tellers. Uh, bank tellers are our friends. They cash our checks, they give us money, uh, they keep account of our savings. And they also have a very important responsibility to weed out counterfeit currency. To do that, they have to be trained. So, Dr. Martin said, many bank tellers go every year to a two-week training seminar in Washington, D.C. And uh, my imagination's running wild at this point as I'm reading, because I'm thinking, wouldn't that be cool to see all of the counterfeit money that has been pulled out of the system? You know, all the people who got the ink color wrong, or the bills were too big, uh, or they got the presidents wrong, um, or they got the serial numbers wrong, or they got the picture of Alfred E. Newman on a $5 bill. You know, my imagination's just going crazy. And then I read on, and Dr. Martin says, during those two weeks in the training session, uh, the bank tellers almost never handle counterfeit currency. He said they spend the vast majority of their time examining the real thing. They know how big the bills are supposed to be. They know what color the ink is. They know how many letters and numbers are in the serial numbers. They know who the right people are whose pictures are supposed to be on the bills. They know many times you can take a bill and wrinkle it up and stick it in your jeans and run it through the wash uh, before it's not recognizable as currency anymore. They know that stuff inside and out. And the reason for that is when they go back to their banks and they encounter counterfeit currency, it won't matter what the counterfeit is because they know the real thing. Dr. Martin said, what a great lesson for us. I'll never be an expert on Islam or Mormonism or the Jehovah's Witnesses 
Uh, I'm struggling to learn all I can about Christianity. Uh, I'll never be an expert on those. But if I know the core doctrines of the Christian faith, then when a counterfeit comes along, it won't matter what that counterfeit is. I'll be able to identify it and then hopefully engage that person with gentleness and respect and share the truth with them. Well, I want for us to have just a moment of uh, invitation time, uh, and we're just going to have some music uh, playing. And uh, Adam, if you would, wouldn't mind coming uh, in the front, um, I don't know if there's ever been a time in your life when you've received Christ as your Savior. I've tried to uh, project uh, and share the gospel message as simply as I can, and that is that you and I are sinners in need of salvation, and Christ provided that through his sinless life, death, burial, and resurrection, and he calls us to receive him and to surrender him by his grace through faith in Christ alone. If you've never done that, I encourage you to come visit with Adam or visit with me. We would be delighted to pray with you and see you receive Christ. Maybe you have a friend or a family member or co-worker who is uh, engaged in, in uh, the false belief systems of Jehovah's Witnesses or Mormonism or Islam or something else. Maybe you just want to come and pray for that person that God would lift the veil from their eyes and they would see the gospel message. Or maybe you have another decision to make. Uh, whatever it is, I would encourage you to make that this morning. Um, why don't we just stand together and we just close our eyes in prayer as music plays and then we'll close the invitation out in a few minutes.